Hello, my name is Justin McClue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And we have a very special guest today. We have, in the Important Cinema Club offices, Rochelle Charcot. We're going to be talking about John Waters, a filmmaker that I will admit I'm a neophyte of, but we have two experts here today. And we should maybe mention that Rochelle is programming the retrospective of John Waters that's happening at the Royal in December. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, December 7th to the 9th. And I hear that you have introductions for every film by John Waters. Uh, I have one introduction, but it's adorable. <laughs> um, John Carpenter did an intro for us like about a month ago, and it's like, it's really sweet that he did that. John Waters did like a full like script with like art direction and it's really really cute so i'm really excited so today we're going to talk about john waters in relation to two of his films female trouble and polyester is there a reason that you guys wanted to go in that direction i think they're his two best films yeah i think so too or i think they're they're at least his two most representative ones yeah particularly female trouble i think is the one that is the kind of fullest flowering of his aesthetic and his ideas. So how long have you been a John Waters fan, Rochelle? And how did you get, like, into him? I think since I was a teenager. I mean, it's it's not an abnormal story about growing up in a small town and then seeing some kind of, like, freaky movie and feeling kind of understood for being a little bit weird. I probably watched Pink Flamingos when I was, like, 15, and it blew my mind. I kind of got to him through this book that he wrote, Crackpot, The Obsessions of John Waters, which was uh, a series of essays, or his journalism, that he wrote for various magazines. And, I mean, I didn't didn't get to Susan Sontag's notes on camp until later, but I feel like I got a lot of those sorts of ideas through that book. Like, he had a point of view of the world. I guess his overwhelming artistic project through his whole career has been everything that polite society considers beautiful is ugly everything mm-hmm. that it considers ugly is beautiful and it it was almost as if he offered a unique lens through which to view the world like he had that an essay in that book john waters guide to la where it was all about tourist spots you could visit like trying to find francis the talking mule's grave or <laughs> trying to interview charo's plumber yeah or, yeah. or he talked about the sad band of cultists who stand around man's chinese theater so they can watch natalie wood's handprints get filled with water when they hose it down in the morning (laughs) yeah anything is ever uh written that i've read is i I just like obsess over like i'll read it in like a day um i desperately would love to talk to him at all (laughs) and also he kind of opens up different avenues of exploration for people his work almost or his writings or his films cause you to explore a, totally. ca- a counter canon totally. whether it's uh andy warhol whether it's douglas like Cirque. douglas sirk the kuchar I brothers i explored douglas sirk and i explored william castle because of john waters yeah. i think that for me even though that pink flamingos was on the cover of my bible cult flicks and trash picks by the video hound <laughs> i give that four bones <laughs> <laughs> There was something that I found a little bit off-putting, and I've been trying this week to put my finger on why, because I've watched a lot of films of his that I hadn't seen, I'm like, man, I love these. These are great. And I think that it's because as a cinephile, what always interested me when I was getting into it was the idea of normal conventions being broken, whether it be in gore or martial arts. It's like an expansion of something. And... From my perception, John Waters was just insanity on screen. Like his group of friends that were not what you're used to seeing. Look at him do all this gross stuff. Like I knew about Divine eating the dog shit. And for some reason, I had no interest in seeing it. And I think that at the root cause was because as a cinephile when I was getting into it, what interested me was not 
a kind of realism as far as like John Waters is like portrayed on screen. Like these are these like outsiders. Like a freak show. Exactly. Yeah. For yeah. me, it was more an idea, and I use this in the broadest sense of the term, a fantasy. Yeah. And Pink Flamingos yeah. to me was like kind of like a scream as it's a teenager. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um on the topic of like the opposite of that, it's uh, just literally pornography sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think when I first heard of John Waters when I was probably 12 or 13 or whenever it was, like I, I guess I was both attracted and repulsed by this mm-hmm. forbidden quality to them. I, I feel like I felt that about a lot of films over the years, especially <laughs> yeah. when I was a teenager. There was something transgressive and dangerous about some of them. And also I think the first two that I saw, of course, were Hairspray and Crybaby. Right, right. Which are so innocuous seeming. Yeah. But I think that if I had gotten in through those ones, I would have explored his filmography. I, uh, I, my old roommate, um, he tried to get me to, like, introduce him to John Waters, so I started light. I started with Crybaby, and he, like, completely hated it so much. Really? That I never went any further. <laughs> I was like, I can't take you any further down this hole. Well, you know, I actually don't think Pink Flamingos is the best starting point. I would say maybe Polyester, because yeah. it's kind of like that middle ground. Yeah, or maybe even Female Trouble could be. I think yeah. Pink Flamingos... Uh, yeah, I started a friend on Female Trouble, yeah. actually. Yeah, yeah. But like, not only is, is Pink Flamingos sort of an endurance test, and it's also very raw, technically, Yeah. but I think it has a certain mean-spiritedness and a certain kind of anger to it that is not present in some of his later movies. Most of his later movies, I think, are kind of sweet. Mm-hmm. Or even something like Female Trouble, which is a very ferocious satire, mm-hmm. at least has a sweet point of view. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like, Female Trouble definitely has more, like, jokes per beat, whereas Pink Flamingos, I feel like I screened it in early November, and I was too nervous to, like, actually <laughs> watch the movie, because it was sold out. It was just really funny to hear people kind of giggle, but then feel uncomfortable, and then, like, scream and like moan and it was just it was weird because there's that fine line between exploiting people right Mm -hmm. and genuinely enjoying their presence and they're doing this as a laugh yeah because even as a teenager when i heard oh this filmmaker made someone eat dog shit i was like huh i don't know if i want to see that (laughs) and show me cannibal ferox instead (laughs) but but also like john waters has been so uh embraced by the establishment lately he's Mm -hmm. become he's become this kind of like godfather of american culture and such kind of a cuddly talk show figure now Mm -hmm. uh, that you know, it's easy to forget that a movie like Pink Flamingos, it's not like it was embraced by the hippies at the time. It, it was politically incorrect at the time, and it's still today, it's got, it still is. It's got rape yeah. jokes, mm-hmm. it's got an animal killed on screen, it's got incest jokes. I mean, it, it it's a movie that resists being domesticated. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was very surprised when I was looking at his biography that he was actually upper middle class when he grew up. And that while he had this kind of conservative circle around him, he was comfortable enough that, like, he injected himself into these outsiders mm-hmm. as opposed to finding himself directly. Well, I mean, he's kind of like a classic case of the misfit who's, like, born into stifling suburbia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who, who doesn't fit in in high school and finds uh, a group of like-minded peers. And from the point that he started making short films or when he made Multiple Maniacs, all of his pictures are suffused with this love of pop culture, Mm. which I think is very important because he's not... I mean, he just wants to shock everybody that sees his movies, but he also genuinely loves doing these things. Yeah, like even when it comes to like something like Female Trouble, like it's just dedicated to like Tex Watson. That's, I guess, an example of the, the kind of harder-edged waters yeah. of, of the early years. And I think he he's mellowed on kind of 
willful provocation. I don't even know who Tex Watson is. He was part of the Manson gang. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Like, he was much more... Waters was much more angry and willfully provocative at the time, mm-hmm. but even though he softened a bit, I think his his worldview has remained very consistent ever since those first few movies. There's something very clear in those early movies is that he did want it to shock, right? Because then you'd go back. Because mm-hmm. it wouldn't matter, like who stars in it or who these people are because it could become a midnight success like Pink Flamingos because you would have to tell your friends you need to see this. Right. He, he was a very canny careerist, I mm-hmm. think. I, I just watched Pecker again, which uh, is a movie that invites an autobiographical reading because it's about a, a Baltimore photographer who, whose naive and technically imperfect photos are embraced by the New York intelligentsia. But the difference between Waters and Pecker is that Pecker kind of did didn't know what he was doing but waters was very deliberate he he yeah. wanted he wanted to make movies that would shock people and that would get people talking and that would launch him into a career yeah i did a uh, that weekend of doing pink flamingos i did two uh like q a's with mink stole and i had non-stop people asking if it was um scripted if pink flamingos Ugh. was scripted which is so infuriating but uh yeah no everything was like to a t he it was his completely his vision because there's a belief there in an audience that they wish it was like improvised yeah, yeah. because then it feels more real i mean it's yeah. crazy that people are still asking that first of all because like it's so on the record at this point <laughs> yeah like people yeah. have had 45 years to learn yeah. that the circumstances of the making of that film i feel like in retrospect when i started to like throw it out to the audience i should have just been like Yes, divining the dog shit. No, it's like not unscripted. But also the the movie is so overwritten. Like the yeah. dialogue yeah, is yeah, so totally. dense. In yeah, that movie. yeah. And even Pink Flamingos, which is a technically rough film, has so many goofy ideas in it mm-hmm. that like how how is how could this just be improvised? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Female Trouble was the movie that he made right after Pink Flamingos, and it also stars his muse Divine. Uh, well, they grew up across the st- or like down the street from each other. I think so. Yeah, which I find incredibly fascinating that two people like that could grow up anywhere near each other Mm. um a drag star who kind of wanted to kind of skirt more into mainstream later on in his career kind of john waters elizabeth taylor yeah yeah absolutely especially in polyester i mean in the 60s and 70s there was kind of this big like underground gay following for you know lana turner and Mm -hmm. judy garland and other kind of screen divas and divine is sort of like the post susan sontag version of that where it's this man in drag who kind of looks monstrous to polite society but john waters is marketing him as the most beautiful woman in the world yeah, and it, yeah, it's yeah. like the, the perfect personification of his aesthetic i think that's what i love so much about uh like the on-screen chemistry between tab hunter and divine and polyester mm-hmm. because tab hunter like just came in and like immediately treated divine like elizabeth taylor and i think that's what makes the mm-hmm. movie work so well i think female trouble and polyester are two movies that are really easy to compare against each other mm-hmm. because like will said female trouble is the final flowering of that pink flamingos and multiple maniacs john waters while polyester is kind of the switch to the mainstream that now you know people who are a little bit put off by those movies can finally enjoy these films even though that they have all of the same moving parts yeah all of the abortion jokes and all (laughs) of the weird sex stuff (laughs) so female trouble uh, Divine plays Don Davenport, I believe is the character's name, yeah. and the the film chronicles uh, Don Davenport's sordid life from her childhood when she just wants those cha cha heels for Christmas, uh, <laughs> and she has a falling out with her family that ends with the Christmas tree falling on Grandma, <laughs> and uh, she gets 
raped, I want to say, by a, a passing motorist. I, I think it, it's it, consensual. Is it consensual? Yeah. I think so. It's ambiguous. In a scene where Divine <laughs> fucks herself, which yeah. is hilarious. Divine, <laughs> as a man, plays the motorist. Uh, she gives birth to Taffy, a bratty, uh, bad seed child, played by Mink Stoll. As Dawn Davenport grows up, she is eventually wooed into a life of crime by a band of almost almost kind of like Warhol's factory meets the Manson family. Yeah, yeah. People who espouse the philosophy that crime is beauty. Mm-hmm. Even though that they look down on the people that they're exploiting. In terms of Waters' aesthetic, I mean, as a craftsman, John Waters is almost at like a Kevin Smith level. <laughs> yeah. Like, like in terms of just basics of like composition, pacing, uh, story structure. But there's one of his films where a character says that I think it's Cecil B. Demented, where a character says that technique is just bad style or, or something <laughs> like that. The movie has style. It has a very coherent worldview. Tacky furniture, tacky clothing. Yeah. It's like this movie out of thrift store finds creates a whole world. And I think the key scene is when Mink Stole and David Lockery in, in their ridiculous makeup and clothing are walking down just a regular Baltimore street and they say, oh, look at look at how terrible this street is. <laughs> it, it, like, it has no style, it has nothing. And of yeah, course, yeah. it's just a normal... In fact, you see some passers-by, just regular people in the background. <laughs> I found it interesting because I watch Female Trouble after I watch all the other ones uh, that we did for this podcast, is that it's such a in-your-face pink flamingos like look how gross all of this stuff is well i watched this movie with a friend maybe a year or two ago and and he liked it but he said about two-thirds of the way in this this movie is really funny but i can't wait for it to be over so i'm not (laughs) constantly looking at ugliness it feels about 10 hours long and i don't mean that in a negative sense but that there's so much stuff packed into it and there's no noticeable structure to it it just stuff keeps happening well it's an unrelenting experience like there's no relief from the world he creates like there's even that one scene where like mink stole as taffy is like playing you know make-believe car crash and she's like pouring ketchup on herself yeah. like it's just a totally gratuitous <laughs> throwaway scene that's just a nut and and it has no bearing on the plot but it's just another like awful thing that john waters is yeah. cramming into the movie as part of this this project where everything beautiful is ugly and vice versa do you remember rochelle what was a john waters movie that made you go i love john waters and i want to know more of him i mean i think it would probably just be pink flamingos mm. um just it was so like um out of any sort of normal film that I had watched at that time because I was like a teenager. Did you kind of get into the whole like Dreamlander world? Because I think one of the appeals of him is that he cultivated this weird menagerie around him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I was like obsessed with Mink Stoll for a long time. Really? Specifically Mink Stoll? Yeah, yeah. And is there a reason for that or? just thought she was cool. (laughs) (laughs) Did you tell her that when you were on stage? Uh, nope. (laughs) You're like, I was obsessed with you and I thought you were cool. I'm a big fan of Cookie Mueller. She's great. Have you read read any of her work? I I think if Female Trouble is watchable, as as I believe it is, a lot Mm -hmm. of it comes from the fact that even though there's so much quote-unquote ugliness in the movie. It has a celebratory tone to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has a very think, consistent worldview. Uh, yeah, like you said earlier, it's not quite as mean as some of the other stuff. I think out of that early pre-polyester like era for John Waters, I think Female Trouble is probably the most palatable. So I watched Polyester for the first time this week, and I loved it. Yeah, I mean, right. If you're going to take all the elements of early John Waters and implement it in a Douglas Sirk style melodrama, <laughs> yeah. and then you put Divine in the lead role, who, I got to point out, 
was anybody else, I would have probably gotten annoyed with this film because mm-hmm. an hour of it is spent just shitting on Divine, <laughs> just telling her how terrible she is. And there's that fine line just watching it. Uh, Divine's daughter and polyester is always like thrusting in the air <laughs> and dancing and stuff like that. But it's still fun to watch. Yeah. Well, Divine has a gravity to him mm-hmm. like improbably i think he's a very good actor and when yeah. you watch the movies there's an incredible range of roles that he does you know i think it's the fact that like with divine and tab hunter i think that they're not being cartoonish about it like i think they're really going for like a douglas Sirk just ode yeah it, it's weird the balance that divine has to strike though because on the one hand he has to be absurd in mm-hmm. the movie he, he has he has to be ridiculous but you also have to have a certain amount of sympathy for mm-hmm. him. Like, you don't want to take too much enjoyment in seeing him shit on the entire time. Yeah. You do want him to pull out of it at the end somehow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even though that, in the context of the film, he does nothing really to do that. <laughs> and I love that this is the movie where John Waters, you can tell he's like, all right, I'm going to try to do some stuff here. I'm going to do that Douglas Sirk, Dario Argento style color gel lighting. I'm going to have some steady cam moves. The film opens with like a long take that goes through the house and then finds Divine mm-hmm. in her bedroom. Yeah. And that's why I loved it so much. Technically, it's still a little dodgy. Yes. <laughs> it's got, it's shaky. It doesn't quite look right. Yeah. But I think that the mixture of, like you mentioned, taking it serious enough that you are invested in what's going on, but still having the absurdity that a woman chases down Divine Son in a bus and then bites his tires. Like <laughs> Some of the later... So after this, of course, he did Hairspray and Crybaby, and there was a brief Hollywood period. Some of the later ones, I think, uh, don't get a lot of love. Uh, Rochelle, do you... Like, let's say after Serial Mom, what's your feeling about his filmography? I've honestly only given it, like, a watch each, I think. I'm more devoted to, like, the earlier stuff, I think. So, like, the Dreamlander stuff? Yeah, yeah, definitely. When he's involved with that group? Because even with polyester... Serial Mom's great, though. That yeah. movie's yeah. very funny. <laughs> is that people were saying that, like, oh, he's already ejecting yeah, his yeah. Dreamlanders from his, you know, ensemble, and it's losing some of that flavor that we originally fell in love with. Well, every movie he did after Pink Flamingos, there was a certain... There were a certain amount of people saying... Oh, he's he's sold out, or he's right. behind the times. Which is inevitable. It's yeah. inevitable, but I mean, I mean, people were giving Pecker that criticism because Pecker came out around the same time. There's something about Mary did, mm-hmm. and I seem to recall a lot of the critical reaction around Pecker was like, "Oh, it, it's it's you know, compared to the Farley brothers, he's not shocking at all anymore." Mm. I remember Roger Ebert in his review for Pecker wrote that. When they go into the gay bar and a man gets teabagged, you expect more, but nothing happens. <laughs> and, uh, it's it's weird, right? Because I'm sure John Waters was sitting there and saying a variation on, what else do you want me to do? Yeah. Like, I made Pink Flamingos. I made Female Trouble. I made Desperate Living. Like, how much further do you want me to go with this? Mm-hmm. And Pecker, starring a perfect Edward Furlong, his charisma leaked <laughs> from his body. Uh, rest look, in peace. You looking know? like... Well, he didn't... <laughs> yeah. well, he, he may as well be dad i'm sorry and i kept thinking like is this the same guy from terminator 2 who's like very animated while in pecker he's like hey guys how's everybody doing eyes half closed thanks i watched a pecker this week you know i still don't love it but i found myself warming to it on this viewing i found something kind of endearing about john waters baltimore in this film like it is a Baltimore of bus stations and of laundromats and mm-hmm. thrift stores. And 
I think there are very few filmmakers who definitely who have an understanding of kind of like a working class environment. I remember I visited Baltimore once for a day. <laughs> oh yeah. And I feel like that was like it was a key to kind of like unlocking the John Waters films for me a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> because like Baltimore has this perfect between New York and Texas feel to it. Right. It's very blue collar, working class for a lot of it. A lot of the houses in Baltimore actually have like pink flamingos unironically Cute. on the lawns. <laughs> not not a John Waters reference either. <laughs> It's just they they just have pink flamingos. Pecker, I think, captures that in a way that's very endearing. And do you think, so you said you gave up on John Waters, not give up on John Waters. Yeah, but. yeah. I've, I mean, I've not revisited Pecker in a number of years. Um, what is it about those later movies that you don't gravitate to? I think, honestly, it just might have been youth. Like, I just, like, I haven't, it wasn't the same kind of high watermark, maybe. Mm. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I remember I saw Dirty Shame probably right when it came out. Mm-hmm. And even at that point, not being familiar with John Waters' filmography, there was something just off about it. There's a desperation to A Dirty Shame. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, also, too, like A Dirty Shame and has that heightened John Waters style, you know, everybody giving very cartoonish performances. If you don't have any frame of reference for that. But I think it's also the difference between Divine and the people that he would put in his movies who you would never expect to see in these movies versus Johnny Knoxville and Tracy Ullman or Selma Blair is that there's a level of falseness to what's going on, even though that, like, I don't believe that anybody in Female Trouble acted like that all the time in real life. Mm-hmm. There's a level of, like, oh, I'm just hanging out with pals and we're having fun. Yeah. There's something, you know, special about that, yeah. which a dirty shame it doesn't really exist there anymore. Yeah, also, something about the style is lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also, like, Serial Mom, it's Kathleen Turner giving a dramatic performance. Yeah. I love Serial Mom. Serial it's Mom so rules. funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think that, like, later John Waters is something that I, I really enjoy because because he is taking these fairly generic stories, but implementing his own style on it, whether it be Hairspray, which feels real in a way that you wouldn't expect. But because John Waters doing it, you have that sense of Baltimore. You have the mm-hmm. sense that like Ricky Lake is like a nice girl, but she's also mean sometimes. Like mm. the film starts with her looking at the screen and going, oh, look at her. She's such a queer. <laughs> like, well, there's something... Yeah special about that yeah I, I mean it's it's an interesting movie because it's half an earnest civil rights movie mm. and half kind of like a parody of a civil rights movie yeah his movies are you know half satires of baltimore life and half earnest depictions you know love letters to baltimore life mm-hmm. uh it's it's a strange tightrope that he walks i think the only other thing i would say about john waters is he's an example of a filmmaker whose life and his extracurricular pursuits you know like his writings and his stage shows are like extensions of the text uh and each one film i don't think can really be viewed in isolation from the filmography Mm -hmm. so like pecker has a scene in a strip club where this you know very butch female stripper comes out and she says like what the fuck are you looking at isn't that one of his books too like he actually saw that yeah well exactly he like role models has a whole chapter about this Baltimore stripper named Zorro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? I remember that now. <laughs> yeah. And the scene in Pecker, I don't think is very funny, but it's interesting when you when you hear about the real Zorro and yeah, you're able yeah. to apply that to it. Or if it had appeared in one of his earlier films though, it would have probably worked in a way that it doesn't work in Pecker. Yeah. Or or like, you know, a dirty shame. If you see John Waters being interviewed around the time that movie came out, talking about all the fetishes that are in the movie, you know that this movie came out of his own, you know, weird obsessions and preoccupations. And I feel like 
a dirty shame probably plays better if you watch it with John Waters commentary track. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. It's like it's totally. not it's not a standalone work, and also it's a movie that can't really be viewed without. I feel like some understanding of who Waters is and what totally. the other movies are like. It, it, all his whole career is is one big soup. So for people that want to get into John Waters, the person beyond his movies, Rochelle, what would you recommend that they see? He's done so much stuff. He hosted an anthology horror series from for a while. Oh, about like women murdering their husbands. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think any given book that he read or that mm-hmm. he wrote, I mean, Carsick is a wonderful book. Uh, he splits it up into three novellas where it's the best possible scenario, the worst possible scenario, and then what actually happened. So fiction, <laughs> fiction, nonfiction. And it's just, it's so funny. Um, yeah, I would I would say start with any sort of book if you want to go outside of the films. And don't start, like I did, with A Dirty Shame and Cecil B. Demented. <laughs> Not too good starter, John Waters. <laughs> Not great. I was saying to Justin before that, you, you know, there's the scene in Cecil B. Demented where all of the whole gang in the movie is showing off their tattoos that are on their arms where it's like Fassbender, Douglas Sirk. Mm-hmm. Otto Preminger. I, yeah, I think, I think we should get tattoos and, <laughs> and mine could say Ron Howard. And, uh, <laughs> yours, yours can say Tim Story. <laughs> all our favorite journey. Yeah. Will has Ridley Scott yeah. tattooed on his arm as well and yeah. stuff like that. Okay, so letter time. Oh we- man, you get to be here for an important Cinema Club Ooh. letter segment. How about you respond to all these letters for us? I will, I will. <laughs> So we're going to do these completely off the top of our head, and we've had no preparation at all. If you want to send us any letters, you can contact us at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And I haven't done it in a while, but rate and review us on iTunes. Sure. Because sometimes I just don't know why to get out of bed in the morning. (laughs) And if I hear that ding of maybe I have a new iTunes review, it'll just let me pull those sheets off and get dressed for one more day. (laughs) I was checking the iTunes TV and movie podcast charts, you know, looking for us. And I saw that what ranks on the list is the official podcast for the movie 18 again, starring Zac Efron. <laughs> Which came out like seven and, years and ago. Also, and also the Couples Retreat podcast <laughs> with Vince Vaughn. These are two podcasts that each had one episode um, in, in 2009. So listen, th- the new goal, the new Important Cinema Club goal is let's beat 18 again and Couples Retreat. <laughs> the podcast about them, the, not the, the movie. The podcast That's that, madness. That, oh, well, everyone loves those movies. <laughs> and we also did a Patreon Patreon episode today with Rochelle and Will, because he's yeah. legally forced to appear on everything <laughs> that I do. And we did it about uh, important cinema club favorite Jim Carrey and his new doc, Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond, about him appearing in Man on the Moon. So give us $5 a month, please, on, on Patreon. <laughs> Yeah. It's sounding incredibly desperate. Yeah. Uh, we forgot last week where we did an episode on... The 20th anniversary of the year 1997. <laughs> yeah. so, so, shocker, Jim Carrey may appear in that as well. <laughs> so, our first letter this week is from Tyler Ogilvie. And he goes, Hey guys, huge fan of the show. I have checked out many movie podcasts over the years, and Important Cinema Club is the best of the bunch. Suck at film spotting. <laughs> and also 17 Again podcast, <laughs> A Couple Retreat. Oh, that's what it's called. 17, I, 18 Again was the George Burns movie. 17 <laughs> Again is the Zac Efron movie. Yeah, where him and, yeah. is it Matthew yeah, Perry? Yeah, or? yeah, yeah, they switched. Yeah, there was, yeah, there was another I one called so. 18 Again that had George Burns in it. The Important Cinema Club regrets the error. <laughs> I find it amazing when you both talk about becoming avid movie fans at such young ages. Ah, I'm 29 and just started to give into my love of cinema over the past few years. The sheer volume of great or important movies gives me paralysis at times and I can waste hours just trying to decide what to watch. So, are you both able 
and Rochelle too, if you can, it's put together a top 10 or top five list of starting point movies, movies that will start someone down various paths of discoveries. Hopefully this is different from a favorite movies list in some meaningful way. Cheers, Tyler and Calgary. Rochelle, when did you get started as a movie like lover? Oh, I mean, it would have been childhood. Uh, my dad's a big, a big movie fan, uh, but he was kind of exclusive to like the 40s to 60s. So that was kind of all of my entry ports, points into cinema to like go further later on. So that my dad hated. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, when of. you rebel against your dad, it's <laughs> yeah. like, you wouldn't get pink flamingos, dad. <laughs> My parents saw polyester on a date, by the way. Oh, Did cute. They, they, and that's the they night that they, Will was conceived. Yeah. <laughs> nice. I, yeah, they, they didn't like it. Oh, no. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to start with Will on this one. Uh, we actually contact each other and wrote off lists. And by that, I mean this is all off the top of our head. Yeah. Will, what do you got? Okay, so I have a few points here. It's not it's not precisely a top ten list, but it's a, it's a few points that could be points of entry. So for an introduction to perhaps silent or classic cinema, but especially silent cinema, I would suggest an easy entrance through Chaplin and Keaton with City Lights and The General. Uh, And then after that, you can get to the silent dramas. For introductions to European art cinema, let's get to some, you know, real bedrock white bread choices that are also, I think, pretty entertaining and also a pretty easy easy way of access. So I'm suggesting Agira, The Wrath of God, The Seventh Seal, and A Man Escaped. For the continent of Asia, I would suggest... Asia. Asia. <laughs> I would suggest Rashomon, Chungking Express, and Drunken Master, the three of which will lead you down various pathways. And I don't want to uh, overlook the rest of the world, <laughs> of which I'm mostly unfamiliar <laughs> So I'll, I will. T- so I did a Google search to see <laughs> what I should recommend. I don't know much about African cinema, but I can tell you that Usman Simbin's Black Girl is a good film and a good entry point. And for the cinema of India, which is enormous, uh, why not start with Cholet? I think actually, if you want to learn about the avant-garde, if you want to learn about exploitation film, if you want to learn about all sorts of para-cinema or counter-cinema, John Waters is frankly a good entry point, so I'm going to suggest Female Trouble. And finally, here are just uh, four movies that I think could be interesting entrance points and can lead you down interesting paths. Uh, Rio Bravo, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Duck Soup, and Miss 45. And I'm sorry, there are no female filmmakers on that list because I suck. (laughs) How about you, Rochelle? What would you recommend? And Uh, how did you approach this list? um, So I was at work and I was really busy. Working at the Royal Cinema. (laughs) Yeah. Seating budding cinephiles all across Toronto. (laughs) I don't even know what that means. (laughs) Seating? Yeah. Like giving birth to something? (laughs) Nothing but. Um, So I picked some movies that I like a lot. Um, I started with Watership Down, which is my favorite movie. Um, as an entry point into animation, uh, there's at times mixed medium. It's a pretty intense film. I could, I think that that could lead down a more like experimental route. Um, for entry points into kind of American melodrama, I would say um, Douglas Sirk's All That Heaven Allows um, or The Swimmer. I um, love The Swimmer. It's so good. The Swimmer's great. I also said Stop Making Sense because it's clearly the best concert film ever. Um, as an entry point into American Westerns, I said The Shootist, High Noon, and The Last Sunset. They're all really captivating stories, and they don't kind of flounder like the way that some Westerns can. Mm-hmm. For entry points into Polish cinema, I said Mother Joan of the Angels and Possession. 
And for entry points into film noir, I said Sweet Smell of Success, Kiss Me Deadly, or The Hitchhiker. I got one woman filmmaker on that. I am ashamed. <laughs> nice. So the way that I approach it when I got this question is I actually started making the list and putting, like, Dawn of the Dead, you know, to leave mm. this. Yeah, your favorites. But I, but I tried to pull against it and go, okay, as a young cinephile... What I really enjoyed was having films recommended to me that I'm like, I've never heard of this before because there's less pressure on me then to be like, that is a good movie. Right. Like, there's so many classics that for a long time I didn't watch because I went, I don't need to see this. It's a classic when, like, there's a reason that they're famous and everybody talks about them. By the way, I think we're just assuming that the audience will have some familiarity with, like, Citizen Kane, (laughs) The Godfather, you know. (laughs) These are very good films. At least that's what the IMDb Top 100 tells me. (laughs) So the way that I approach it is I picked a bunch of topics and it leads from there. Like, when I first started becoming a cinephile, there was a belief that older films are... Uh, not as engaging or innovative as you modern day film because you know technique evolves but you just watch the animated the adventures of prince Ahmed from 1926 which is a german animated film done with shadow puppets and it will still blow your mind today and it's one of those rare films that was actually directed uh by a female filmmaker that's also feature length animated which almost never happens even to this day oh, look at you mr woke you've got a female <laughs> filmmaker in here right off the bat <laughs> and then for further research into silent cinema and and almost all the films I picked are playful in some way. You have like Murnau's Faust, The Phantom Carriage, and King Vidor's The Crowd. As far as the French New Wave goes, which is another one of those, like, you got to watch these films. And you're right. like, yeah, they sound complicated. Right. I would recommend Zazie dans le Metro. It has no English translation. And it's basically the French New Wave Zucker Brothers film, which <laughs> is like j- people hold giant magnets. There's like crazy stuff going all over the place. It was directed by Louis Mal, who made the exciting My Dinner with Andre, which me and Will uh, recreate every time we record a point <laughs> cinema club. Uh, film noir, The Big Clock. It's slick. It's self-contained, but it's creaky enough to have an extra layer of charm. Um, I would recommend for Godzilla films, of course. Oh, thank God. we. <laughs> <laughs> the important... Hey, as a kid, I didn't get into Godzilla because I saw King Kong vs. Godzilla and I found it boring. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, well, I, you know, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have, like, yelled at that because Godzilla should be on the list. <laughs> I love Godzilla. Uh, I, I recommend Godzilla versus Hedorah, which is also known as Godzilla versus the Smog Monster, which is an interesting choice because it's an outliner to those films, which is so weird, mm-hmm. but it has all the basic building blocks that you'll find throughout all the other films as well. Kung Fu, of course. I recommend Shaw Brothers. Dirty Ho, it's called, from 1976. It will let you into that shot. Ho is the man's name. Yes. <laughs> it's a good entry point to Shaw Brothers films because they have a rhythm of their own that you don't associate with modern day martial arts. And you'll notice a lot of stuff is stolen and used into other stuff. In Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, when Ramona grabs Scott and uses him to fight someone, that's actually a gag from Dirty Ho. Right. That's done better because I think the guy doesn't know he's being controlled uh, to fight the other person. Uh, I, last year at Marion Bad, which is obtuse art cinema, but it's still like dazzling even on its surface because it's so playful uh paris texas because it's that kind of american indie film even though it's directed by uh someone from germany i almost uh put paris texas on my list too i just rewatched it the other day having not seen it for like 10 years and i was like damn it i love this movie it's so good <laughs> right rest in peace harry dean stanton yeah and win wenders career um <laughs> <laughs> ouch <laughs> As far as the Western goes, I recommend The Great Silence by Sergio Corbucci. It's very serious and it's set in snow, so there's that novelty factor. And then uh, Save the Green Planet. It's probably one of my favorite South Korean films of all time. Doesn't get talked about enough. 
<laughs> and my last film, uh, Water Watermelon Woman. I thought you were about to say Water Power. I thought you were going to say Water World. <laughs> <laughs> Two great choices. All right, well, that's my list, guys. Uh, no, Watermelon Woman, which came out in 1996, was directed by Cheryl uh, Dunyas. I'm probably saying her name wrong. Which is about a um, black video store attendant who wants to look into the career of a actress who would appear in the background of stuff like Gone with the Wind and things like that. It has that kind of rough-hued edge of clerks, but at the same time, it's very thoughtful and trying to do a lot more. And nobody ever talks about it because it got a really shitty DVD release, even though that I heard from someone that it's currently being remastered and <laughs> to be re-released in cinemas. So if you're like... How the fuck am I supposed to keep track of all those movies they just mentioned? I will be posting the lists on filmtrap.com. So just go there and you'll find me, Rochelle, and Will's list of movies. Thank you very much, Rochelle, uh, for being on this podcast. Thanks for inviting me. And when is the John Waters retrospective happening? Uh, that is starting on December 7th. Um, the first night is Multiple Maniacs and Polyester. Uh, I have got a bunch of Odorama cards from Warner. Uh, so please come, because I have like 200. <laughs> <laughs> and I asked you, like, where do these Odorama cards come from? Uh, they were just at Warner. I don't know. <laughs> so I wonder if these are like the original ones? I think it's like a recreation. Okay, recreation. My DVD of Polyester comes too, with yeah. one but i haven't actually scratched and sniffed it mine is like turning yellow <laughs> i should just fucking scratch have and you sniff scratch it. and sniff them oh, Do they yeah. recreate the flavors good enough it's yeah. real gross <laughs> <laughs> and um how long does it go for it goes through december uh, right it goes uh, up until december 9th um so there's two movies a night december 7th there's two movies on december 8th there's two movies and on the 9th there's three movies um which one is john doing the intro for I'm going to play the intro the whole time because it's adorable. (laughs) (laughs) And is there like a pack people can buy if they want to see all of them? Yeah, um, online only. There is a pass. It's 60 bucks to see all six movies. Um, Otherwise, it's $12 ahead of time or 14 at the door. So please come. (laughs) Please. (laughs) So next week, Will, we're doing something that we've been talking about doing for a long time. Poverty Row. Yes, studios like Monogram, Producers Releasing Corporation, and Republic, who in the 1940s and 30s specialized in low-budget exploitation movies for the bottom half of a double bill. Uh, I think we'll be looking at something by the Bowery Boys. We'll probably be looking at a uh, a Western. Or Orson Welles' Macbeth, which he made for Republic. And there's, I made a list, it's so long, and Will was like, I just want to watch all of these. Like, most of them are like an hour long, so I've I've already started. There's one called Hitler's Madman that was directed by by Douglas Sirk. <laughs> and an, un- an uncredited writer on that film, Edgar G. Elmer. Really? Yeah. Two, oh, man. Two titans collide. <laughs> Until then, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. I'm Rochelle Chark. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> So, Rochelle, what's it like to be a programmer at the Royal Cinema? So, I used to be a social worker. I've only lived in Toronto for about three years, and social work was terrible. I couldn't do it. You hated the people, right? <laughs> I hated the people. <laughs> uh, so Those then, unwashed. So then I decided to start pursuing film, and yeah, I moved here, and I uh, did my damnest to get that job. <laughs> and what did you think you were going to do when you moved to Toronto? I had no idea. I had an internship at Rumorg Magazine and no job. So, with the internship at Rumorg, they have their monthly screening series there, so I was always in the lobby 
Um, and then I started hanging out at the Royal, and then I was hired for concession, and then I was hired as a programming assistant, and then I was hired as a programming director. <laughs> I kind of get the sense that, like, you and the other programmers, like, it's almost like this fun thing where you can, like, you totally. know, pick something you want to show, and then people will show up. Totally, yeah. I, I'm really, really happy with how the last um, half of this year has gone um, as far as, like, attendance. Um, I think everyone's kind of really hitting like their like good groove as far as programming goes. All right, Justin over here also programs at the yes, Royal. Yes, he does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For the Laser Blast Film Society. So now do you have some dirt that you can uh, give us about working at the Royal? <laughs> tell, t- tell us about Tommy Wiseau. <laughs> I know that he used to show the room at the Royal. So this is pre my time, but um, we don't screen the room anymore because people... Uh, trash the cinema. The screen is broken because of it. Don't tell anyone. And um, you can tell if it's like white on screen. Yeah, <laughs> you, can see yeah. a bit of, you can see the ghost of a stain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think I don't know if this is just like a rumor, but I think someone like ripped up a sink in the men's bathroom because I imagine a bunch of people were on Jesus. coke. It's like the room is like uh, cigarette burns. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. There's a screening series uh, which is quite popular in Toronto called Drunk Feminist Films, which are now at the Royal. I mean and um they wanted to do the room in the like wake of uh, the disaster artist but we were like absolutely not like yeah. even with like a feminist spin like no you know it's a, a, the interesting thing about the room the first time i saw it at the royal like in 2009 mm-hmm. uh, the audience was very it, like it, it leaned hipster right and so you know there's that thing that people say whenever whenever the lisa character does something stupid or bad everyone shouts because you're a woman Mm -hmm. like it was mostly women leading that charge like kind of reclaiming the movie but what i heard was or i got the sense that as it went on it became more bro-y yeah i can imagine i I never attended like one of the royal ones but uh i can see that happening considering all of the (laughs) destruction (laughs) so in the day the day of like running a cinema because you're there like every day right yeah yeah i'm um so because it's kind of like a you know like a family type operation Mm. um my technical title is programming director but i also um do administration and operations and marketing um and i help run events Uh, so you do everything yeah i'm there a lot (laughs) were you there when the roast of ron jeremy happened no but that was also a disaster um i think at one point (laughs) if i'm not mistaken one of the managers said she went backstage i'm okay might be messing this up it's either she saw him getting a blowjob or uh she went backstage and then um there was just like a bunch of condoms everywhere like used condoms (laughs) i I heard somebody say that he he got a blowjob in the washroom um like if you're ron jeremy aren't you just tired of that (laughs) well i feel like ron jeremy at this point just kind of like walks through life and you know and then and then you know perhaps perhaps a uh a fan will come up and and delighted by the novelty of blowing ron jeremy will offer it and ron jeremy will say this is my life. <laughs> no one ever asked me how I'm doing. I really, you know, I was I was really morbidly curious to go to the roast of Ron Jeremy, but tickets were sixty dollars. That's and, insane. And this is also pre my time. Yeah. The the only announced guest was Dustin Diamond. <laughs> so what would you con- what would you consider? <laughs> hey, Will, he's going to be a guest on the podcast. <laughs> Ease up. Ease up. When we do our Ron Jeremy episode. <laughs> You could use the same roast material. Yeah, so yeah. I hope you didn't pay that 60 bucks someone. <laughs> Programming at the Royal, though, do you have, like, a favorite event that you did that, like, was... Um, I'm so glad I did that. I will never forget it. Yeah. I mean, Pink Flamingos was a big one for me. Um, I had a really good time doing Nightmare on Elm Street 2 for Pride. Um, but there's been quite a few. 
Like you do, you have a series as well, right? Mm-hmm. Retropass that you program. Yeah, yeah. I've been doing that for I think two years. I think mm-hmm. I don't even know. And you do like Rod Sterling's birthday around Christmas. Yeah, like that's yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Um, last year, actually, when I did Rod Sterling birthday bash, I was like, that was the first year that I did it, and um, I closed with time enough at last. And when the glasses fell down, spoilers, um, oh, a, bunch no. of pe- a bunch of people in the audience went, <gasps> and I was like, oh baby, mm. <laughs> wait. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. Well, do you think that there's like an audience for like a rep theater in this day and age where people on their yeah. Netflixes and stuff like that? No, I totally think so. Um, uh, a good example of that is um, anytime I've ever talked to my dad about like what's coming up as far as programming, he goes, no one's going to come to the swimmer. 200 people came to the swimmer. <laughs> so it's like... And it's not just like older people who can't no. program a, a DVD or something like that. Yeah, no, totally. It's It's a lot of people in like their 20s, 30s. Like, yeah. well, the Royal is, a, is an inviting atmosphere, but also I think like, like because it has these curated programs, people build a sense of trust with the program. Exactly. I think that it uh, offers this, this kind of like marketing almost mm. where it's like, if I liked, you know, ABC of what Brendan played, then I'm likely to like D. Yeah. You know what I mean? And even if you don't like it, probably the next one will be yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. sure. And exactly. you, won't, you won't probably regret that you've seen it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because at the Royal, you're going to see stuff on the big screen you could never see anywhere else. Like... She's all that. <laughs> uh, sold out twice. Two screenings, right? Yeah. Yes. Fa- Phantom of the Paradise, that, obs- that obscure little film. Hey. <laughs> Brendan's throwing his earphones off and he's like, what the fuck? 